Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation Podcasts. This is Susie Lewis, your host, speaking from Toulouse. In this episode of Let's Talk Transformation, we will be tackling the topic of speaking up and being heard in today's organizations and in today's society. I am delighted to welcome Muriel Cosette, founder of the Academy of Oratory Art. Muriel, welcome to the show. Well, Sue, thank you so much for having me. I'm humbled to be your guest. <laughs> it's an opportunity to speak to you and through you to countless other people. I can only imagine. Hello to everyone. Muriel, you have worked extensively in academia on the subject of rhetoric and you have a PhD in philosophy. You have also taught extensively on these subjects in the UK, in Australia and in France. And you have made it your quest to give everybody access to the art of public speaking and the ability to empower voices, including one's own voice. Clearly a quest that we share, and this is where we met. And I am proud to be part of the expert community of the Academy of Oratory Arts, which I find so inspiring, both in its contents and its mission. So my first question has to be, can you tell us a little bit about your story and what inspired you to found the Academy of Oratory Arts? Yes, I can, because it is something I've actually reflected upon quite a lot. Mm -hmm. I am not an extrovert at all. I'm not someone who thoroughly enjoys, you know, voicing my views on this or that issue whenever I have the opportunity to do so. Not at all. Do I enjoy the spotlight and keep raising my hands in meetings? Nope. Uh, <laughs> I'm definitely an introvert. To speak mm -hmm. I'm also uh, certainly quite shy or rather shy socially. And yet I run a business on public speaking. So uh, <laughs> the paradox. It begs the question, right? Really, what can what can possibly explain this? Well, several things, and I asked myself this question: you know, Why on earth did I create this business and not something else, something mm -hmm. different? The first element of response lies in the fact that I do remember vividly my very first attempt at speaking in public. Uh, unlike many people, I mean, do you, do you remember your your first you know attempt at speaking to others when you were a kid? I mean, uh, you, yes, I do. You do. Okay. <laughs> I went so, very red. How was it? <laughs> I was quite embarrassed and I went very red. Okay. So what was the occasion? Was it was it was it at school or or yeah, it was at school. It was in the school assembly and we had to present our weekend, what, what we'd been doing with the weekend. Right. And I was fine until I realized everyone was looking at me. Like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> okay, well so I also do remember very precisely my, my first attempts at speaking in public because I couldn't. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I was a stutterer. Uh, okay. Words stubbornly refused to <laughs> come <laughs> from my mouth. So I, I had them very clearly, mm -hmm. extremely clearly, and yet they were stuck there, completely stuck there. Mm. So my first memories of speaking to others are nightmarish, really. Oh, no. mm -hmm. It was incredibly frustrating. It was incredibly isolating. It was alienating too mm. uh, at a very young age. Mm. So uh, I experienced silence and the silence was not a chosen one. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I was lucky because the, the stutter gradually improved, very gradually improved. Well, disappeared completely when I was, uh, when I was 20 or so, but this is a peculiar experience, obviously. And that. um mm. Had, 
I, I think two two major consequences which directly led to me creating this business. The the first thing it taught me is simple. I became aware of this obviously at a young age. It's the fact that speaking to others is always a privilege. And it may not be how we perceive it or how we perceive public speaking. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe we can't perceive it, you know, as a chore, as something that needs to be done, uh, as, as something casual. Uh, we may not even be thinking about it when we do it. But mm-hmm. it is, in fact, always, always a privilege because some people can't. Mm-hmm. And once in my life, I couldn't. And it's something I've never forgotten. The immense privilege I have to be able to do so today with you. And I've, I've always regarded every single public which I gave, whatever your audience, whatever the setting, as a, as a complete privilege. The second consequence of this experience is that I worked insanely hard mm-hmm. to prepare every single public speech, you know, whether it's poetry <laughs> when I was age eight or Grand uh, Oral at Sciences Po, anything really related to public speaking, I, I just over-prepared like, oh, much more than anyone my age, I think, because it was <laughs> existential for me. <laughs> and what, was that because it had to be perfect or? Yes, yes, okay. very much so, because mm-hmm. I, I was extremely aware of the fact that I could fail spectacularly because I was stuttering. So, and that was a fear that, that really left me. Mm-hmm. So in order, you know, to, to ensure that this wouldn't happen, I worked incredibly hard, incredibly hard. And the paradox was that every single time I, I delivered an oral performance, it went extremely well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I started to practice oratory, if you want, literally on my own, like like most people, I think. Mm-hmm. But I did it very early on, uh, okay. very on. And then I had the chance, the opportunity to um, attend, you know, uh, institutions and universities where oratory had a central place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I graduated from Sciences Po. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than 20 years ago, so quite, quite <laughs> but at the time, I guess it was possibly the, the one of the only institutions in France which gave a premium, which which gave uh, such importance to oratory and uh, to to oral presentations. Which doesn't mean that I was trained to present. I had to deliver oral presentations every week, and yet I had no training. So you know, it, was, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was stressful as well, but. I managed to graduate and then I left for the UK and I, I, I got my PhD from the London School of Economics and became a lecturer. So I was still an introvert. I was still shy socially, but at 50% of my time, you know, I was delivering lectures in front of you know, 200 students in a foreign language, which, which, you know, it was an extra layer of students mm. <laughs> um, and, and being invited to international conferences uh, on my area of expertise. So public speaking was really a big part of this, of my academic experience. And those years are really those during which I, I, I refined, I, I honed, I deepened my, my knowledge and my understanding of what public speaking can do mm. um, and what good public speaking actually is. Uh, my, my very first lectures were bad. <laughs> they were bad. <laughs> <laughs> the last lectures I believe, I believe were good. Mm-hmm. But this is something I learned again and I learned on my own. Again, I had no training. So <laughs> it's a fabulous, fabulous example of learning by doing though isn't it oh yeah but it takes a while <laughs> yeah 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 and, and it takes resilience i'm hearing <laughs> yeah and it, it's it's just that you're completely on your own while yeah. 
it's not the case anymore, okay? Things have changed, but mm. at that time, the fact is that I had no prior training. <laughs> mm. So I came back to France uh, for personal reasons. I didn't feel like going back to academia. And then I was very struck to see that in France, uh, there is, there is increasingly, there is, there is a very strong emphasis that is put on oratory, eloquence on, on the mastery of this skill, which mm. speaking, it wasn't the case again 10 years ago, but uh, there is a growing interest in, yeah. in oratory and it's become de facto the most selective skill in my view today, especially for young people and for students. We now have to take a grand oral as part of the baccalaureate, uh, which wasn't the case only two years ago. Mm. And uh, if you want to um, you know, attend any grand école or in fact uh, increasingly any university you need to go through an oral examination yeah uh, its importance is uh, often greater than the written exams you're judged upon the skill it's the one which will decide of your fate you know mm. you will fail or you will succeed if you master it or if you don't and, and, yeah and yet at the same time <laughs> yeah there is still no high quality training upon this very skill. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Unbelievable! Like <laughs> it's so paradoxical, and it's it's a situation I find unacceptable. Okay, mm. it's a great thing to say. Look, people, you need to master this skill. It's true. It's one of the most important skills you can master. It's, mm. it's the skill of a lifetime. Okay, mm. definitely the skill. And yet. There is no training upon this. So literally students are told you're going to be selected, you're going to be evaluated on this, and yet you're not taught mm. about, you know, how to speak in public. And this is wrong. This yeah. is wrong. And if I look at the startup culture, it's all about pitching. And often you only have that pitch to mm. convince people. So it's the same, isn't it? Yeah. But in, in, in so many situations, uh, when you meet people for the first time or even afterwards, you know, you are what you say. Mm. Yeah. People perceive you through what you say. Mm. And so it's incredibly important for everyone, for entrepreneurs with a new idea, when, when they want to persuade people to, you know, to, to sort of follow them in the path they decided to undertake. Uh, it's incredibly important for leaders, whatever yeah. the sector, whatever the domain, 80%, 80%. Of leaders' communication is done orally. Yeah. 80%. Mm. Like, really, like, there's such a strong link from the very beginning of oratory between leadership and rhetoric or leadership and public speaking. It's interestingly linked and it's incredibly important. It's this skill that always makes a major difference, whatever your career. Absolutely. Okay. Can we demystify oratory art? What does it mean for you? What is it essentially? Oratory is the is the art of speaking well, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a simple, simple <laughs> And that begs the question: What is the art of speaking well? So no, this it, it's a deceptively simple answer. Oratory is one of the most ancient arts that has been with us. Appeared on the fourth fifth century BC uh, in mm-hmm. Athens. So so why there and why then? Because at the time in Athens, uh, people are trying and testing a new political regime, uh, and it's called democracy. Okay? It's yeah. power to the people, democracy, yeah. and it's a direct democracy in Athens. You know, there mm-hmm. is no parliament. Okay, so every single citizen 
when uh, he wants his idea to be adopted or his measure to be implemented, need to speak up in front of the others to convince them that it's a good idea. Okay, mm-hmm. that's okay. how it works. And every single citizen also needs uh, to be able to defend himself in front of the judge uh, when mm-hmm. he's on trial. And that happens quite often, at the, well, you know, in ancient Greece. And there is no lawyer, okay? So clearly... <laughs> so they really have to be convincing. <laughs> well, yeah, like, like the importance of public speech, like, like this, this history of how oratory emerged mm tells you that it's intrinsically linked with democracy, okay? Mm. It goes hand in hand with democracy. Rhetoric and democracy, these are really two points of of the same piece. And it also tells you that at the time, uh, the the, the question that every single citizen in Athens asked himself was what works and what doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Orally, when I want to convince someone of anything, when I want to persuade someone of something, what works, what doesn't work? Mm. And rhetoric or rhetoric is a compilation of answers to that question, which hasn't changed throughout centuries. You know, it's still the question that students undertaking the baccalaureate asking themselves, mm. what works, what doesn't work? At the time, some people start observing very carefully mm. uh, people who win their trial, you know, people yeah. who manage to convince <laughs> the judge even when the other mm. is them. And they'll say, well, yes, actually, there are some patterns. There are things that work much better than mm. others. As a matter of fact, there is. And, and so rhetoric will provide people with some very practical tools that they can use to speak more efficiently. Okay, rhetoric is the art of speaking efficiently. And I like that because that art doesn't change and neither does the human reaction to that art. No, no, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're about what works, what doesn't work. And so rhetoric is going to say, well, there are some things that worked much better than others and these are the tools that are still used today. And that's the fascinating thing about mm. them is that they date back from 2,000 years ago and yet they're still talking, you know, uh, without without much change. And rhetoric, you know, is about, well, we, we often talk about the five canons of rhetoric so it deals with invention, invention, what you're going to say, how you're going to choose, find, and develop your arguments. That's, mm. that's the first part. finding what to say. Then you have a disposition, the, the disposition, the order in which you're going to say what you chose to say. Mm-hmm. And the third canon is elocution, elocution. Mm-hmm. Um, words you're going to use to say what you decided to say in the order that you decided to. <laughs> <laughs> Fourth, memorization, memoria, okay, how you're going to remember all this. And mm-hmm. fifth and last, actual, oratory action, the work of your body and your voice, mm. which of course are important when you're finally in front of, in front of your audience yeah. and when you actually deliver your speech, when it becomes a speech. So I like the five canons. Because first, it gives you a very good overview of what rhetoric and oratory is about. It also shows you that it's not simply about the fifth one, which is no. the one that people tend to focus on, in mm. voice and body. Yes. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it's the whole thing. Okay, it's, it's the five canons. And so in order to be good, to master this skill, you need to master those five things. It's great because it's quite a simple structure, isn't it? But it's it's not simple to do. And people like you say, particularly, I think, in leadership presentations, focus on the last one. Yeah. 
very interesting to have the upstream sort of cognitive process around what's happening before they get to the stage. Let's put it that way, before they get to, this is what I'm going to say, and this is non-verbally how I'm going to present it. Yeah. Is that yeah. what your catalogue is based on then? Is, is all your yeah. offer, Are all your offers based on that framework? Oh, yeah, absolutely, because mm -hmm. it, it covers everything mm -hmm. uh, that you need to have a really powerful oral presentation. You need to master these five things together. Mm. Uh, all the training courses cover this and also cover the dimensions of persuasions, you know, uh, by Aristotle, etc. This is really the basics, like like mm -hmm. the five canons and what is this, what I just said about, you know, how rhetoric and oratory emerged in ancient Greece, that it was uh, the product of observation yeah. of what's going on, you know, of eloquent people speaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is actually reflected in the five canons because mm. that's what you and I are doing more or less. You know, when we have an oral presentation to give, when we mm. start brainstorming, oh, what is it that I'm going to say, you know, and then deciding about the structure, <laughs> then writing a script, you know, whether it's mm. or a full script, then rehearsing a bit, so that's memoria, and then finally the <laughs> speaking for the other. So it, it's actually the logical order. Mm. Except that each of these categories, they are quite complex. Mm. And uh, each of them needs to be mastered for your speech to be really impactful. Excellent. Sounds so simple, but clearly is not. <laughs> <laughs> Again, rhetoric is a, is a great way of showing you how, how complex the skill is. It's, it's, it's actually a complex one and how uh, complete a skill it is. Mm. Like, like mm. it's, it's a complete skill. And what that will demand that you use your empathy, your critical judgment, your analysis, your verbal, nonverbal, and paraverbal skills. It's a complete skill. Mm. Um, so that's why I'm interested in this skill as well. It's it's complete. Yeah, big. <laughs> it's big. <laughs> and and I think if I look at the hybrid situation, communication is even more important and clarity of communication is even more important from a leader's perspective than it was before if you are leading a team where half the team are remote and half aren't or mm. all the team are remote the transactional feeling to remote working I think can take away the emotional connection that leaders need to have and create with their teams mm -hmm. and they do that by communication of course yes and that is an emerging need of course mm. With, with the crisis, yeah, how to communicate effectively if you're not in the same room. Uh, it's, mm. it's been a challenge for everyone. But yeah, how do you do this effectively, efficiently through a screen? How can you do that efficiently? How can you do this meaningfully? The only thing you have in front of you is just like I have right now, you know, a dark screen. A dark screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Which brings me to my the point about, I loved what you said about speaking to others is always a privilege. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very different lens and, and view to take on it than the one that is, you know, even myself, I hadn't thought of it like that. Mm -hmm. And I love the thought of me thinking it's a privilege for me to speak to you because I know that part of the wider aim of the Academy is one of inclusion Mm -hmm. and of creating equal opportunities for everyone, particularly on this subject. Like you said, oh. it isn't always uh, taught. And when it is taught, it isn't always available to everybody. Mm. So there are many people that never get a voice, even if they have the skills to speak up. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you see the Academy fulfilling 
this social and sort of humanistic mission? Yes, I created this business with one very clear ambition, <laughs> which was to make everyone's voices heard. Okay, so that was a big ambition. Mm. And, and that's certainly because of my sensitivity to silence. Okay? Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive to silences. And of course, it's crucial that everyone can speak and that everyone can be heard. Before, when oratory uh, emerged in ancient Greece, uh, not everyone had the right to speak, of course. Mm. Many people could not. Today, we claim that everyone can speak and everyone has the right to speak. It, it's true, theoretically, but to exercise this right, you know, <laughs> people yeah. have access to high-quality training to become competent mm. speakers. And of course, mm. it's not the case yet. And we all know that some people don't have access to this high-quality training. And like you said, that other people are competent speakers, but are not heard. Mm. <laughs> so those are, you know, different ways of looking at the same issue. So uh, with the Academy, my, my aim was to reach out and to be uh, quite proactive by reaching out to some people who simply don't have a voice today and who mm. don't have access to this high-quality training. And concretely, that meant working with uh, charities or structures which help young people from deprived areas or women looking for jobs or senior people trying to build a business. So clearly, people who need to master this skill, but again, who may not have access to this type of training yet. I do not run a charity, okay? I run mm -hmm. business. <laughs> But mm. I find it, but a business with a very strong sense of mission, of, mm -hmm. of the mission it can fulfill. I find it virtuous in a way, you know, to work uh, at the same time to work with leaders in big companies, to work with, uh, you know, elected people in assemblies or, or to work with entrepreneurs and also to work with students who have never been trained in this skill or with job seekers. I, I do think it's virtuous because Companies who choose us are guaranteed excellence in training. That's, you know, being guaranteed. But they're also guaranteed to have a social impact because they allow us to bring oratory to a new territory or to new territories. And that's really what we need to do right now. Mm. So, so in my view, that's, that's how it should be. It's kind of a virtuous circle. So that's, that deals with the part of, you know, how do you reach people who don't have a voice? As for competent speaker being not heard, that's a more complex question, of course. <laughs> uh, and, but that's one I, I came across when I when I worked on and with women. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is obviously a very complex history between uh, women and public speech. Mm -hmm. When I, I created my business, I, I thought, well, you know, the spoken word, this this skill, which uh, allows to work on so many other soft skills, this skill uh, will appeal to a wide variety of clients. It will appeal, you know, to entrepreneurs, to students, it will appeal to leaders who need to, you know, make their voice heard in their company. It will, uh, like, a variety of clients. And I was right on this. I have a very mm -hmm. nice client portfolio. So this, this I got right. But there was something <laughs> I didn't see coming at all, at all. I didn't foresee this. And this is the fact that, that at first, for quite some time, um, the vast majority of my clients were women. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's women who first, you know, believed in the project, turned it into a business. And yeah, the, the vast majority of my clients were women. So obviously, I, it, it struck me early on and I wondered why. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
And being an academic or a former academic, I love it. <laughs> Puzzle when I see one, it certainly was. Uh, so <laughs> I had a look at, at you know, what, what could explain it. And it's a fascinating history, the, the history of, of women and eloquence. We don't have time to, to spend, well, we don't have much time, so I won't go too deep into it. But simply put, for, for 2,000 years, speaking in public really was part of citizenship. Okay, and, and, and maybe we'll, we'll go back to this, but oratory really uh, appears in Greece. And it's when you are a citizen, then you have the right to speak uh, in the public sphere. And women, of course, were denied this right almost from the start, you know, uh, in the Western tradition. And it's, so they were excluding from public speech, were excluded from public speech and from public life, mm. broadly speaking, for, for more than 2,000 years. It's a 2,000 year long silence. Yeah, I was I was just going to say we're back to the idea of imposed silence. And, sure. you know, I think it's such an exciting mission in general because there isn't anything more important in this world than giving everyone a voice and particularly women. And it's really interesting when you take us through what's happened and just that sentence, you know, women have been silenced for 2000 years. So, I mean, what trends are you seeing now then? in the population that are with you in the academy and in how they're not progressing, how they're dealing with that? Well, I mean, today I work with both men and women, but there is definitely a trend, uh, well, uh, something specific about women and oratory, which again comes from history. This history of silence, you know, we can Mm. find traces of it uh, as soon as we look for them which, of course, we may not do very often. (laughs) So it strikes me, for example, that when you do a little bit of rhetoric, when when you read all the treaties of rhetoric, you know, which Mm. were written for centuries, centuries really, what unites them all, for example, is this idea that, that the worst thing that can happen to a man undertaking the fancy idea of becoming a lawyer or, you know, to to have a a career in public affairs or in, in, in the public sphere uh, was to have an effeminated voice. Mm-hmm. Having the voice of a woman is a no-go. <laughs> it's impossible to speak in public with such a voice. So uh, you who have an effeminate voice, you know, you can, you can, you can, uh, you can leave the public space. It's not for you. You're going to be ridiculed. And I did read some of those treaties, and, and eloquence in those treaties is always male. Oh, right. That that you have to display a male eloquence. It, it's never mm. and those two terms don't come together. And how does it translate today? Uh, well, uh, there is this this woman. Her name is Claire Mason, and she's mm-hmm. the director of uh, Man uh, Bites Dog, and she she coined the term gender say gap. Yes, uh, that's exactly what it is. Yes. Uh, we know the gender pay gap. <laughs> But there is very clearly and, and measurable as well a gender say gap. Completely, uh, women speak speak less than men. Mm. To put it very simply, mm. <laughs> they do speak less in the public sphere. Mm. Uh, they do speak less in companies. They are less confident in their ability to speak up. And again, it's very often pointed that women, you know, have a problem with self-confidence. You know, that's something you keep hearing. But the interesting thing uh, with public speaking is that the confidence gap deepens on mm. this particular confidence on this particular thing it's greater 
than on other skills on than other topics. So there is something, yes, which goes back to history and which I deal with at my own level, my female clients. And I also deal with this, of course, with men or in, in companies with conferences to inform about this history of silence. Because, yeah, knowledge is always a form of power and you can change things when you mm. know more about Of course. But I also, I also think it's ingrained, isn't it, in culture. So yeah. over and above national, I'm now talking about organisational culture. So I'm hearing that it's come from history, so national huh. and international culture. But I think in organisations, you know, it's more of a masculine culture. And that's where that comes from. And like you say, it's often put down to lack of confidence or lack of competence, which is a different question that I, I also don't agree with. But, you know, the, the say gap is something that I don't think organisations take on board today in its entirety. I don't know if that's what you see with the leaders, both male and female, that you're dealing with. But for me, that is a culture change discussion that needs to be happening at, at a senior leadership level in organisations. Yes, and I agree with you. It's very difficult for, for organisations to tackle this issue because... Yeah. It's a complex one. It's one that we may not be aware of. I mean, mm. when I created my business, again, I noticed the trend. And I was like, well, why do so many women come to see me? And, and <laughs> you know, I had a direct interest. <laughs> mm, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I read this book by Mary Bird called, called Women and Power. And, and in this short book, it's very easy to read, but in this short book, she, she draws a picture of, of women and public speaking uh, going back to ancient Greece. It's fascinating because after reading this book, it's like if I had put some glasses on and I thought, well, could it be the case that what she says is actually, you know, really happening in, in meetings or, or, and I started, you know, to have a look and to pay attention to what was going on when people were speaking. Mm. But I, I did start to pay attention purposefully. Well, mm -hmm. I didn't pay attention to this at all before. You know, it, it wouldn't have crossed my mind. <laughs> and yeah. once you start paying attention, then you see very obviously, you see what she means. You're like, well, of course she's right. It's just that before, I would have never guessed. You know, I, I wasn't aware of this. And that explains it's so very difficult for organizations to tackle this because it's it's difficult at the individual level. Yes. yes. <laughs> at, the, at the collective level, it's it's difficult as well. It's one thing to say, oh, well, you know, um, in order to ensure that women are heard, uh, let's provide them with uh, some public speaking training and, you know, let's ensure that they master oratory. That's mm. good. That's brilliant. But uh, in many cases, women you know, are already good speakers or yes. already master writers. <laughs> Uh, and they dare to speak. I mean, that, that is something that I find a little bit infuriating, you know, when I hear people saying, oh, women should dare speaking up. Well, as a matter of fact, they do. Mm. They do, and yet they're not heard. And to understand why, that's where you need collective, you know, a collective approach to what's happening when a woman talks, mm. what's going on. How do we hear what she says? Mm. We hear the same thing when she speaks or when a man speaks. And if not, why not? Mm -hmm. Why not? And for this, you need to take the longer view, need mm -hmm. to go back to ancient Greece. So that's quite <laughs> uh, far away. <laughs> yeah, but you need, and, and this is what I found particularly interesting working in companies is, is to bring this dimension. And this is mm -hmm. something that people um, are always thoroughly interested in because that's war history. You know? Yeah. We're all yeah. part 
this history. That's our collective history. So it's fascinating to discover where we come from, you know, how things were done before and what explains what we have in companies today, you know, where mm. this come from. And uh, yeah, that's that's certainly something that can be done collectively. Um, yeah. People with that kind of knowledge. I think it's about it's about the space, isn't it? The space between, as I call it, but it's about creating that space where everyone's voice can be heard. And that, it really reminds me of discussions around unconscious bias and a more inclusive environment because the work starts once the bias is conscious, which is actually is exactly what you're saying. Once you realised and you made that observation, you thought, okay, so what what now? What can I do with it? What can I think about it? How can I make it actionable? And if I'm hearing you correctly, that's how organizations can do things collectively yes yes i'd say first people need to become aware mm. what's going on that's mm. the first step and without this step i'd say uh, the other one <laughs> yeah. won't be as efficient as they could be okay mm. that's definitely the first step and then at the individual level from this knowledge quite collectively at the individual level there are things that that anyone can do um mm. there, there are you know they may look like small things, but in fact, I don't think they are. There is no mm-hmm. small thing, really. It's about ensuring that conversations are held and that people's voices are, are heard, that everyone uh, speaks. It's nothing revolutionary, but it's revolutionary at the individual level. If everyone starts doing mm-hmm. small things, then it's going to become revolutionary. But yeah, there is, there is, no, uh, there is no ready-made solutions uh, no. in the process. Mm. No, and I'm a big believer in starting small, even if, you know, yeah. your ambition is big. And just coming back to the ambition, and I know time is, is running away, but I have a couple more questions. The Academy is a regional institution today based in Toulouse and in the Occitanian region. Do you have any plans to internationalise the concept and the structure? I mean, you, there's so much potential for impact with what you do. <laughs> Last year, you know, the, the, the lockdown and mm. the current context provided us with uh, very interesting challenges. And that, that's what I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it also opened opportunities which I which I you know I wasn't even aware of. Mm. Uh, so obviously, uh, I, I had the opportunity to deliver a conference nationally um, uh, with with some you know some some big networks and, and big groups, and that is something I, I wouldn't have thoughts of doing mm. Mm. Uh, i collaborated with structures in paris uh, on a project based in brussels so obviously uh, it, it opened mm. up uh, lots of opportunities which are fascinating today but well, i'd say a third of my clients are not based in toulouse or in occitanie and i i'm currently working you know on on a, on a few projects they're mm. all well they all have local components but of course I don't see my development as being only <laughs> only local now, and I can I certainly welcome the opportunity to work with people, yeah, who are based elsewhere, and that's in fact what I've been doing for the last uh, for the last uh, year, uh, and that's and, and it's good. Again, that's mm. yet another thing that I didn't foresee, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but from every crisis comes an opportunity. Oh, they yeah, say. well, certainly it's a superb one. I'd say, mm. Mm. and I think it's a great way to increase impact and create you know more more viral uh, empowerment of voices i mean basically across the world it sounds so dramatic but that's essentially what Mm. virtual working allows you to do isn't it yeah absolutely Mm. 
time is running, so I will ask you my last question because we could talk for hours. <laughs> what, what would be your call to action if you had one call to action for leaders looking to empower their teams and their peers to speak up? So this is something that's so hard sometimes in organizational cultures, particularly if you have something to say that is not in line with the status quo. So, you know, what would be your call to action? It's a tough question. (laughs) Um, I'd say I have two. Am I entitled to have two? You are, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Buy one, get one free. Absolutely. (laughs) Maybe paradoxically, my, my first call, to action, the first thing I feel like saying is, is start by listening. Mm-hmm. It's it's the basis of any good speech. It's, it's the prerequisite, I'd say, for anyone really speaking to you and telling you meaningful things. Uh, start with listening. <laughs> start with maybe you know ask a question and then be silent and listen to what other people have to say. It's a very basic call. I find that really listening to someone is a fantastic skill that um, that can be owned through a lifetime as mm. a leader. And I see mm. this skill as an extremely precious one. When you want people to speak up in your team, you need to be able to listen to them. My second call to action relates to what I think oratory is about. And it would be, well, then addressing myself to leaders as, as speakers. Okay. Mm. Mm. My call to action would be find your own excellence. For me, oratory is about finding one's excellence. You talked about, you know, our collective voices and and amplifying collective voices. And it's very true. It's it's very well, it's it's happening right now. And it's and it's beautiful to see it happening, especially for women. You know, the, the history of women is the history of women sizing this opportunity to speak in public. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's happening right right now. But at the end of the day, oratory remains an art of the singular. Yes. It's very much an art of the singular. And I know that well in, in English there's this expression. <laughs> That says mediocre is over. I like it. <laughs> in part, with this, with this fundamental importance that we now give to eloquence, we, we rediscovered how important it is to master public speaking. Indeed, mediocre is over, and and that's that's a news that is to be welcomed. You know, when it comes to public speech, it's time to find your excellence. And this is what oratory allows you to do. Your voice can certainly echo that of others and join, you know, a collective history. But there is something about your voice that is truly unique. And that's what oratory teaches you to deploy. Not just any excellence, your own. Mm. So oratory is a way of meeting your personal excellence together with and in front of others. Certainly my call to action would be find your own excellence. It's definitely Orally speaking, it's definitely one of the most beautiful ways, in my view, uh, of being yourself, of being yourself and of being with with other people as well. So find your own excellence. Excellent. Thank you. I'm going to leave our listeners with that quest to find their own excellence. I love that idea. Muriel, thank you so much for coming and sharing your insights and thoughts and experience. Where can people find out more about you, about the Academy and about what you do? Well, uh, you can check my website. I have no fully long name, you know, from my company. <laughs> doesn't make things easier, but they, they can certainly check uh, the, the website at www.academiaroratoire.fr. And you have, you know, quite a, well, the, the main information are, are there. And of course, they're more than welcome to get in touch. 
send me an email uh, if there is anything you're interested in or want to talk about. I will be delighted to. Excellent. Thank you very much. I'm going to leave our listeners with that call to action and that invitation to get in touch with you to find their own excellence. <laughs> Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, please head over to iTunes and give us your opinion and feedback. And I'll see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Transformation.